So, here's how we got here. Uh, in the general timeline of the book of Revelation, we, we get to chapter 11 having gone through first, seven seals, second, seven trumpets. So, the seals were on the deed to the were on the title deed to earth. Jesus was the only one who was allowed to take them off and open the, the two-sided scroll that was sealed seven times. So at the breaking of the seventh seal, seven angels are given trumpets. And they come out. And every time a seal was broken, a judgment was unleashed. Every time a trumpet was, brought, was blown, a, either a judgment was unleashed or something happened in heaven. There was a, a corresponding event with each trumpet. Right now, we are between the sixth and seventh trumpets. Now, <clears throat> an indeterminate amount of time has passed at this point. Your pastor believes it is less than three and a half years. And we're going to get to why I believe that as we go through this passage. But there is a group of folks that we haven't spent much time talking about, even though... The book of Revelation primarily concerns what God is doing with them. And that is the Jewish nation. Now when I say Jewish nation, I mean the descendants of Abraham, according to the flesh, that God made a covenant with that this land is going to be theirs. He's going to give them land. He's going to give them seed, offspring, and He's going to give them blessing. Well, the book of Revelation comes... During a time, or after a time period, which we call in, in eschatology, that's the study of prophecy, as the time of the Gentiles. What is the time of the Gentiles? Well, we're living in it. That's what the time of the Gentiles is. The Bible, all the way up to the coming crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, most of it is the story of the Jewish people. And then all of a sudden, in the book of Acts, the gospel starts going to the Gentiles after the Jews reject it. This is the time of the Gentiles. It's lasted for 2,000 years approximately at this point, and right now is showing no signs of stopping. But at the point the book of Revelation's future prophecy begins, the time of the Gentiles is over, and the Jewish nation comes back full front and center in terms of God's prophetic calendar. Revelation chapter 11 gives us a look at what's going on inside the Jewish nation. And what John sees in verse 1 is a temple. Now what in the world is this? I want us to look at this temple and what God is doing with it and the temporary nature of it and see three ways that God uses this temple to express Himself to His people. And first I want us to see that God is patient with the lost. Look at verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. Well, what in the world? When's the last time y'all walked out to the swamp and grabbed a reed to measure something? You didn't do it. Uh, this was, however, a common practice in the ancient world that they would have a reed or a rod that had a specific measurement on it, and you would effectively just use it like a yardstick. Uh, that it had a specific length and you would mark things off with it, and at the end of it you would know how much or how big it was. So John's given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel, the same angel that we saw in chapter 10, uh, says, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles. 
So the first question I'm asking when I'm reading this is where in the world did this temple come from? Because any of y'all ever watch the news? Any of y'all like, like geography, world events, anything like that? <clears throat> when you read your Old Testament, the temple's in a lot of it, isn't it? A lot of what goes on is in the temple. How much is going on in the temple today? Not much of anything. You know why? Because if you go to the mountain that the temple is supposed to be on, there's another building there right now. It's called the Dome of the Rock. The Muslims would call it the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It is one of the top two or three holiest sites in all of Islam. They believe that from that mount, that is where, uh, that is where Muhammad uh, began his journey into heaven to have a bunch of prophecy revealed to him. That's where they, that's where they believe that happened. Is from that mountain. So they built a mosque over that after the temple was destroyed and Islam took sway uh, in the Holy Land. Well, the Jewish nation's not going to build the temple anywhere other than on that mountain. So, when John sees this temple, my immediate question is where in the world did this temple come from? How did this happen? Because do y'all see it going really well right now if Israel says, hey, we would love to tear down this mosque and build a temple right there. Would you guys care if we did that? Do you think that would go very well? Probably not. Probably not. So John MacArthur in his commentary on Revelation uh, points out that the Bible mentions five temples. Throughout all of Scripture, there are five here. There's the, the first temple, it's the temple Solomon built. There's the second temple, which was built by a dude named Zerubbabel. That's a name your firstborn son that. Zerubbabel. Uh, this, was, this temple was built after the exile. And then there's the third temple that was built by Herod immediately prior to the time of Christ. Now, it can't be any of those three temples because they're all gone. They've been torn down. The most recent one torn down was torn down in 70 AD. So it can't be any of those temples. <clears throat> then there's the millennial temple. There's this future temple that exists that we're to told about between Ezekiel chapter 40 and Ezekiel chapter 48. This temple is different from the old temple in that it has totally different dimensions. It's bigger. It's more ornate. And there are fantastic things that happen in this temple that you don't see in this chapter. For example, in Ezekiel 47, there is a river flowing out from under the sanctuary that gets deeper and deeper and deeper as it goes. Its water heals any other body of water it comes in contact with to the point where the Dead Sea is no longer salty. It contains freshwater fish in Ezekiel. Okay, The Dead Sea is so salty that it literally cannot sustain life right now. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. Okay? So this river flowing out from the sanctuary makes the Dead Sea habitable for life and has trees growing on its banks that provide fruit every month and medicine all year round. Y'all, that's not happening in Revelation 11. Plus, if you look at the Temple Mount right now, y'all, there ain't no river flowing out from under it. So it can't be that temple. So there's got to be a fourth one. This is not on your handout. 
But let me read to you two passages, one from Daniel, one from 2 Thessalonians, that tells me this is a fourth temple. Daniel 9, 26 and 27 says, After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, that would be Antichrist, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That would be the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he, who? The prince to come. That would be the Antichrist. Shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be the one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So, in other words, he says there's going to be a time period in the future during this one week, which if you follow Daniel, that, set, that last week is the seven years, that seven year period that we're talking about in Revelation. Antichrist is going to make a contract with Israel. He's going to make an agreement with them that allows them to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. Why would Antichrist do that? Y'all, I don't know. Satan's made poor decisions before. But he's going to make an agreement with Israel that allows them to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. But halfway through that, he's going to bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So he's going to break his word, shocker, halfway through his deal. Now, answer yourself this question. If you're a Jew, where do you carry out sacrifice and offering? Temple. If there's no temple, you can't do that. Are there Jews in the world today? Yes. Are they sacrificing? No. Why not? There's no temple. They don't have anywhere to do it. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4, through 4, Paul says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed. The son of perdition, also known as the Antichrist, sounds a lot like Daniel, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. How can the Antichrist sit in a temple and claim to be God if there's not a temple to sit in? So, in other words, we know that there is going to be a temple built at some point that allows the Jewish nation to continue the sacrificial system. They're going to pick it back up. For the first time in 2,000 years, Israel is going to reinstitute the Old Testament sacrificial system in its newly constructed temple. So, why does John... We, we, we know that there's a temple now. We know that it's a fourth temple. We know that Antichrist has allowed the Jews to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. And they have reinstituted the sacrificial system. Now, as a note, guys, we're Christians. Why don't we sacrifice? Because we've already had our sacrifice, right? We don't have a need to sacrifice anymore. That Jesus is our great sacrifice. So that's why we don't sacrifice. But the Jews don't recognize Jesus, do they? So they still are waiting. They're still waiting on Messiah. They still want to carry out that old covenant. So they want to rebuild that temple. And they want to start this again. They want to bring it back. So why does John measure this temple? What's the significance of this? Well, there's protection involved here. That God is cordoning off 
the worshipers in the temple compared to those who were outside. The ones in the temple, God says, count them. Measure them. But the outer court, that's been given to the Gentiles and they're going to trample this city for three and a half years, for 42 months. Why is God protecting worshipers in a temple erected to begin sacrificing because they have rejected Jesus. Why is God doing that? Y'all, that was a head-scratcher head to me for most of the week. That you're never going to pull up at Stapleton Baptist Church and see your pastor out back in a linen ephod slaughtering bulls for the forgiveness of the sins of this congregation. You're not going to see that. The reason we have a cross hanging up here is to remind us that Jesus, our great Passover lamb, has been slain. That all of my sins were placed on Him. And when He was executed, my sins died with Him. His blood cleanses me and I have no need for the blood of bulls and goats anymore. Okay? I don't need that. The reason that God... God gives us a unique blessing is because He dwells in us as the person of the Holy Spirit because Jesus has died and made us clean. That we have this unique spiritual blessing. So why in the world, in Revelation chapter 11, does God grant a special protection to a people who have gone back to sacrificing? That's a great question, isn't it? Why does He do that? Let me tell you why. This passage has caused me to reevaluate some of the assumptions that I've been operating under for my entire life concerning the temple and the sacrificial system. Let me lead this off by asking you two questions about our own faith. We have two ordinances in the church. Baptists, what are they? Lord's Supper, Communion, and Baptism. Right? This table... In, in that baptistry. When somebody is baptized, what happens to them? They get, physically, they get wet. Right? Spiritually, does it wash away sin? No, it does not. Baptism is symbolic. It is a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is a way that we symbolically identify with Him. That we are, we are dying to sin, being buried with Christ, and rising to walk in newness of life. Spiritually, nothing happens in that water. Right? It is also a symbol of being washed clean. It is not washing me clean. But... Just because it's symbolic. If it's just symbolic, we shouldn't do it, right? But wait, no, we should do it. It's important. The reason that I always want to baptize on Sunday morning if I can is because we have a bigger crowd here on Sunday morning. And when I baptize somebody, it preaches a message all on its own, doesn't it? What about the Lord's Supper? What happens when you take the Lord's Supper? Are you actually eating the body and blood of Jesus Christ? No, you're not. It's symbolic. Jesus says, take and eat this. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance. 
It's a way to communicate to the world and to remind ourselves that Jesus' body was broken for us and Jesus' blood was shed for us. But just because it's a symbol, because it's a symbol, that means it's not important, right? We don't have to do it. No, it is important. We do it because it is a symbol, because it keeps it in front of our mind. So let me ask yourself a question. Has the blood of bulls and goats ever taken away sins? No, it hasn't. So just because it's a symbol, that means it shouldn't be done, right? Now, we're not going to do it because that would convey the wrong symbol. But let me ask you this. God allows... Antichrist to make probably the greatest strategical error of his time on earth by allowing him to make a deal with the Jewish people that lets them rebuild the temple. Ask yourself what might happen if you have a group of people who are so hungry for having their relationship with God restored that they go back and they rebuild the temple and they go, okay, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to build an altar and we're supposed to sacrifice. Well, what does sacrifice do? It says you symbolically lay your sins on the lamb and then the lamb is slain and then the blood is put on the altar and that is a symbol of our sins being forgiven that something has to die in our place. It preaches a message, doesn't it? It shows you something. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, this is not on your handout, says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. In other words, they're kind of like baptism in the Lord's Supper. They're symbols of something real, but they don't actually do it. They can't make you perfect. Now, the Jewish people who build this temple think they can. But they can't. Would they not then have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sin. Here's what happens. They rebuild this temple, and by the mercy of God, finally the light bulb comes on. That they see the sacrifices being slain in the temple. They see the bodies of these animals being broken. They see the blood being shed. They read the law that says that there has to be blood. They read this and they go, wait a minute. A bull is not equal to a person. A lamb is not equal to a person. They get it. For the first time in history, the law accomplishes what God set the law out to do. The law is a tutor. The law teaches us. It took 2,000 years, but in Revelation chapter 11, the Jewish people get it. That God allows that to happen. So what does that do for us? What's the application here? Guys, how long has God been working on His Jewish people since Jesus came? Almost 2,000 years, right? And they haven't figured out that Jesus is Messiah yet. I'll do you one better. How long has God been working on humanity? Pretty much since Genesis 3. 
Is there anything that God has put in front of lost people that would make who He is and how good He is and how sinful we are evident to us if we would just open our eyes and look at it? Absolutely. This is on your handout. Romans 1, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. That God has put in front of us this world that if we would open our eyes and look at it, we would see enough of Him to know there is a God, He is good, I am not, that something is wrong between me and Him. There's enough out there for us to figure that out. And y'all, God is patient with us. That He's put all this out there for us to see. He's put all this out there for the lost to see. And He is willing to wait as long as it takes for His people to get it. Aren't you glad that God is patient? Aren't you glad... That God waits. That y'all, God could have given up on His Jewish people a long time ago. He could have given up on that covenant and said they will never turn the corner. But wouldn't you know it, in in an amazing, shocking turn of events, this supreme act of disobedience Building a temple when God has already provided the perfect sacrifice. For some reason, which we'll get to in a minute, all of a sudden this time, the law seems to make them open their eyes and go, wait a minute, there's got to be a better sacrifice. And the tide begins to turn. It took 2,000 years, but man, God will do it. I don't care if it's your son, your daughter, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your cousin, your co-worker, your friend. Whoever it is. You just keep pushing with the gospel and you worry about God changing their heart. Because it might take him a lifetime. But God will take a lifetime if that's what it takes. God's patient with the lost. He's good. But don't misuse his patience. Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering? Some of you might have patience. Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. God's being patient. It's not that he doesn't care. It's not that your sin's not a big deal. It's not that their sin's not a big deal. It's a huge deal. By the way, that was the message of the entirety of the temple. Is that sin is a big enough deal that something has to die. But God is patient. He gives you an opportunity to repent. He gives you an opportunity to turn around and say, Oh, I get it now. But eventually, that patience... God's patient with you to give you time to repent. He's not patient with you because He doesn't care. 
So first, God's patient with the, God is patient with the lost that He allows the Jewish people to rebuild this temple so that they can see the gospel played out through one of the most powerful illustrations there's ever been, the temple sacrificial service. <clears throat> so what is it that made this time different? Why did the Jews seem to get it this time when they haven't gotten it with the previous three temples? What made the difference? Well, verse 3, God's patient with the lost, but God's also vocal about His grace. Verse 3 says, I will, give my, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Who are these guys? Y'all, I don't know. I know that there are two witnesses that are uniquely empowered by God to convey a message. What message? Well, the gospel. They're preachers. These guys are divinely empowered preachers. And they're going to preach for three and a half years. That's 1,260 days. The same amount of time that the, the temple service is going to be allowed to go on. The first half of this deal that Antichrist makes with Israel. They're going to be standing in Israel, not that far from the temple, preaching. And they're in sackcloth. Why are they in sackcloth? They're mourning over the people of God. Do you know how sad I would be if I came in here one day and found y'all sacrificing? It would break my heart. Because that would mean y'all didn't get it. That would mean that y'all didn't have a relationship with Jesus. That would mean that you thought that Jesus needed something added to Him. I would be broken hearted over that. I would mourn and I would start preaching and try and tell you differently. That's exactly what these two do. They see their countrymen, they see these Jews coming into the temple and going to sacrifice, thinking that these sacrifices are going to take away sin, that they're going to finally make everything right with God. And these two preachers set up shop right outside the temple and say, No! You don't need this. They're mourning over the people of God, the covenant people of God, missing the story. So they start preaching the gospel and people start responding. Now let me tell you something interesting about these prophets, these witnesses. You get a really weird verse in verse 4. Look at verse 4. These are the two olive trees and two lampstands standing beside the, Lord, beside the God of the earth. What in the world is John talking about? What are olive trees and lampstands and what's it doing? Well, this is a direct callback. I told you this was going to get Jewish. This was a direct callback to Zechariah chapter 4. One of the minor prophets. Here's a quick summary of what happens in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah is concerned with the building of the temple. And the temple needed to be rebuilt, but there needed to be leaders to oversee it being rebuilt. And the two leaders that you get are Zerubbabel. He is the Davidic heir. He's the king. And then there's a guy named Joshua who was a priest. And God set apart these two men and said, I'm going to make them the leaders over the effort to rebuild this temple. And I'm going to enable them to be successful. And in Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah sees a vision he's confused about because it is confusing. He sees 
A lampstand, now I want you to think about this, close your eyes and imagine it. He sees a lampstand with a bowl on top of it. So there's a stand with a bowl, and around this bowl are seven lamps. And each of the lamps has what's translated seven pipes. Really all that means is little shoots for wicks to come out. More wicks equals more light. Okay? So each, there's seven lamps, each with seven wicks. So that's 49 wicks worth of light. It would have been exceedingly bright. He sees this lampstand, and beside it, he sees two olive trees dripping oil into pipes that flow into the bowl. And he asks this angel, what am I seeing? What's going on here? And the angel explains it and interprets it. And kind of what's going on, it, it, this, is, this is from the uh, Tyndale Old Testament commentary. Uh, <clears throat> it says, The lampstand represents not the Lord, but the witness of the temple. So the temple, this thing that Zerubbabel and Joshua are building, is a lampstand. Y'all, what does a lamp do? What's its purpose? It gives light. When you go in a room, you turn the light on because you want to understand where things are. You want to see things. You want knowledge. That The temple provides that. It provides a way for people to understand sin and atonement and the shedding of blood for its forgiveness. It's a way for people to learn about God. And the two olive trees... Dripping oil into these two pipes flowing into this bowl. These two pipes are Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two guys who are in charge of building the temple. And God is continually letting His Spirit, the oil, flow into them. And that is what's powering the building of the temple. That the olive trees, they're not even pressing the olives to put in the lamps. God's got the oil flowing straight out of the trees into these guys. It's an unlimited supply. One lamp stand in Zechariah 4 receiving the oil from two pipes. But that's not what you see in Revelation. You see two lampstands. Now in Zechariah, the lampstand is the temple. So if John's referencing Zechariah, I only see one temple in Revelation 11, so why are there two lampstands? Does that mean there are two temples? Yes. They're just not buildings. Y'all, who's the temple of the Holy Spirit? Us. Do you know, Christian, when you gave your life to Christ, you were washed clean by His blood, you were made pure, and you became a habitation for the Holy Spirit. That the reason we don't need a temple is because we is one. The Holy Spirit dwells in me. If you know Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. He lives in you in the exact same way that He lived in the temple in the Old Testament. He dwells there. He does not leave. It is an amazing relationship you have with God. So when John says these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the God of the earth, what he's saying is that that temple over there 
That's not the one providing the real light right now. It's these two witnesses standing out here in front who know the Lord Jesus, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who are preaching the gospel, who are empowered by God limitlessly to preach His gospel without end. Those are the ones giving the light. Those are the ones clearing it up. That the temple is going to be confusing. But these two witnesses out here, they're clear. That if it weren't for these witnesses, folks would be completely lost in going in this temple. But God cares enough about lost people that He sends clear messages to them to say, this is how you are saved. Guys, listen, this is why you do evangelism. If you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, what was the purpose of the temple? To give light, to give illumination, to make things clear for people, to understand how they can relate to God. If you are temples, that's your job. We are to teach people how they can relate to God. And to do that, we've got to open our mouths. Have y'all ever had a conversation with somebody who is 100% convinced that they have a great relationship with God and it makes no sense when you compare it to actual biblical Christianity? Oh yeah, me and the man upstairs, we got something worked out. We got a good thing going, him and me. Oh, God bless me. I'm sure He has. Well, why do you believe you'd go to heaven when you die? Oh, because I believe in God. Well, Satan believes in God too. I mean, believing in Him, I mean, that's great. He's there. You ought to believe in Him. But how do you relate to Him? Are you His child or not? Oh, yeah, we're all God's children. Well, no, John 8 says that we're not. John 8 says that God's children behave like Him and Satan's children behave like Him. So how do you know if you're God's child or not? And there's just these cultural answers that people look around and they, they look at the world and they, they listen to other people talk and they come up with ideas on their own and they get this kind of folk religion, Christianity. I've met people before that think they're Christians just because they're Americans and America is a quote-unquote Christian nation. You ever met anybody like that? America is a Christian nation. I'm an American, therefore I am a Christian. Never read the Bible a day in my life. But I'm a Christian because I believe in God. Yeah, well, Muslims believe in God. Are they Christians? No. You want to know what God's method for people not being confused about how to relate to Him is? You. You. Your witness. You sharing the gospel with them. You being that temple, being that lampstand, the same way that these superpowered witnesses will in that day. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, that God intends you to be a temple. Matthew 5.14-16, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill can't be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. 
So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If God made you the temple of the Holy Spirit, He didn't make you a temple of the Holy Spirit as a place where He would just come sit and chill and hang out. He made you a temple of the Holy Spirit so that your light would shine and other people would see you and give glory to God. That's the point of being a temple. The same way that these two witnesses provided light and direction to people who wanted to know where to find God, we are to provide light and direction to people who want to know where to find God. And to do that, we've got to open our mouths and speak, and we've got to live in such a way that makes our words carry weight. So God's patient with the lost. He's willing to wait, and He can use anything to reach them. God is vocal about His grace, that He sends witnesses you want to know? He sent us to Stapleton. He sends people to tell about His grace. And then finally, and very briefly, y'all, God's serious about His grace. I really worry that sometimes we think because God offers us grace as a gift. When somebody offers you a gift and you don't like it, what do you do? You take it anyway. You do it, and you do it with a smile, and usually you have that really fakey voice that goes, Oh, wow. I love this. I know exactly where I'm going to put this when I get home in the back of my closet. You know, you, 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 because why, why do you act that way when they give you a gift? Because it's what to not take it. It's insulting. It's rude. You know, imagine that one of y'all, you know, painted in a... None of y'all have ever given me a painting, I don't think. Um, if I, if y'all have and I've forgotten it, that I just ruined myself with somebody. Um, <clears throat> but I don't think any of y'all have ever painted me a painting. Imagine if y'all put in all this work of painting me a painting and gave it to me as a gift. And you held it out and said, Josh, I did this for you because I love you and I thought you would enjoy this. And I said, man, this thing's horrible. I don't want it. How would you respond? Would you be insulted? A little bit. Yeah. You mean to tell me that I put in all this work and I did all this effort and I bought all this paint and I bought this canvas and I spent the hours to do it and I drove over here and I got out of my car and I walked to your door in the 138 degree heat to hand you this painting and you tell me you don't like it, take it back? Fine. I'm done. I'm out. You don't get this painting. I'll find somebody who appreciates it. Has God ever given you a gift or offered you a gift that required great resources, labor, and a lot of travel to bring it to you? Yeah, His Son. Resources? Man, salvation took His blood. Work? It took 33 years on earth of perfectly obeying the law. Travel? Jesus had to leave the highest heights of heaven to come down to this earth to dwell in the muck and the mire with us to actually carry out the salvation of humanity. Do you think God's going to be insulted if you say, man, that's dumb. I don't want that. Yeah, how insulted is God? 
Verse 5, if anyone wants to harm them, the witnesses, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These, the witnesses, have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls on the day of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Y'all listen, God's patience has run out at this point. There's not much time left for people to decide one way or the other. So God lets them make their decision. And if they try and shut the witnesses up and say, we don't want to hear this anymore. We're tired of this gospel. We're tired of this mess. You guys think you can stand out in public and make us listen to you all this time? We'll show you what's going to happen. We're going to forcibly remove you so we don't have to put up with you anymore. God says, no, I've had enough of that. my gospel being done like that. If you lay a hand on them, I will burn you alive where you stand. Well, that seems quite rude, God. That seems a little bit intolerant. Don't people have the right to decide whether to obey or not? Acts 17.30 says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Y'all, I'm offering you the gospel, but just because I stand up here behind this pulpit and offer you the gospel doesn't mean in eternity's viewpoint you have a choice. I don't, I don't mean you, you don't have a choice as to whether or not you're going to obey. I mean you don't get to just enjoy eternal life without it. You don't get to pick whatever way you want into heaven. You say, well, God, I had a choice to obey you or not. Yes, and the consequences of that choice are just that, consequences. Do you know that Margaret has the right to choose whether or not she's going to obey me or not? I can't go in her head and flip a switch that makes it where she can't obey, where she can't disobey me. She has the right to decide whether or not she's going to. And when she decides not to, she either gets a spanking or time out. Right? She has the right to choose, but then the, the results of that choice is that she gets consequences. Y'all, the gospel is a free gift. It is offered to you, but the rejection of it carries a high price. And this shows exactly how much God, how seriously God takes it. And that rejection of the gospel at the preaching of these two witnesses and trying to shut them up results in people's real life death. In closing this, Ms. Joyce is going to come up and we're going to have a couple verses of an invitation to him and give you a chance to respond. Just in case you respond to this and say, well, God, couldn't you have had a little bit more mercy on them? Couldn't you have shown them just a little bit more grace? What does, if I were to tell you there's somebody who could strike the earth with all manner of plagues and turn water to blood, who does that sound like in the Bible to you? Sounds like Moses, doesn't it? Didn't he strike the earth with all kinds of plagues and turn a bunch of water to blood? Isn't that the first plague? Sounds a lot like Moses, doesn't it? What about calling fire down from heaven and shutting the sky so that it doesn't rain in the days of their prophecy? Who does that sound like? Sounds like Elijah, doesn't it? If you ask your pastor who these two are, I think these two are actually Moses and Elijah. I think God sent them back, which brings me to an interesting verse. Luke 16, 29-31. This is from a story that Jesus tells about 
the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man begs to go back and tell his family, wait, no, if you send me back, they'll listen. Because if somebody comes back from the dead, my family will repent. I don't want them to get punished. I don't want them to go to hell. And Abraham says to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be preceded, though one rise from the dead. If these two are Moses and Elijah, that would be very interesting because you would have Moses, you would have the prophets, and you would still have some that rose from the dead. And guess what? Everybody still doesn't listen. What more do you want God to do? Y'all, you can make the argument from now until the cows come home. God could have given a little bit more. God could have shown a little bit more. God could have waited a little bit longer. God could have gone a little bit farther. But y'all, ultimately what it comes down to is whether or not somebody is going to listen to what God has already given them. And what God has offered you today, if you are sitting here under the sound of my voice, God has given you an opportunity to give your life to Christ and to leave behind the life of sin that will lead to death, health, and separation from the love and presence of God. You've got plenty out here in front of you. You've got somebody standing up here functioning as a witness to provide clarity to the gospel for you. You've got the world to look around at and see that there's a good God who makes good things, and you can look at yourself in the mirror and tell that we're not always good. You've got all the knowledge you need to know that you need a relationship with that God. And it's going to boil down to whether or not you actually listen to what God has given you. You can be saved today. You can be forgiven today. You can have the blood of Jesus cleanse you from all unrighteousness today if you will just believe. If you want to know how to do that, then I, this is your opportunity to do so. Ms. Joyce is going to lead us in a couple verses. Uh, of of him, uh, that's going to be him number three thirty. Amazing grace, Alfred three. And if you want to know how you can uh, know Jesus, uh, then you got a few options. You can come down the aisle and talk to me. You can uh, fill out the guest card on the side of your bulletin, or you can catch me at the back door. But don't leave if, if you need to know the Lord. Um, Y'all, I know today is a lot. Believe me, I tried to find a way to split up. I couldn't do it. And I'm hopeful that God used it in somebody's heart today. But if you forget everything else I said, please remember me saying God has given you every piece of knowledge you need to know that you've got to have a relationship with Him through Lord Jesus Christ. There's suffering.